Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is. My name is Tyler, and I'm your host, and this is episode 100 of the Bread of the Word podcast. This is 100 episodes of weekly biblical content, going verse by verse through books in the Bible. We have been through Psalm 119, we've been through Romans, and we've been through Ecclesiastes, and now we are beginning Song of Songs, which is an interesting book. The Canticle of Canticles, as the Latin fathers called it. And it's often become a book that we as modern people are unsure of, um, sometimes unaware, sometimes we're intimidated or even afraid of it. We don't, we don't know what to do with it sometimes. And it seems strange and foreign to us. <clears throat> and the language is it's erotic. It is, in some senses, we might, might say too erotic. It is language many of us have been told is bad, is unbecoming of Christians to use. That it is, it's not, just not how we talk. But then it's in the Bible. The, the Word of God speaks in this way. Why? And Carl Truman uh, brings an interesting perspective on the nature of the issue in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he says, Nobody looking at Western society today could fail to see how sex dominates the culture in a way unknown to our ancestors in the Middle Ages or the early modern age. From art to politics, sex is omnipresent. And thinking of human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desire is now virtually intuitive for us all. The subject of sex and sexuality, whatever term you want to use there, in modern culture is a complicated one. We have largely been cultivated in an environment that categorizes itself around the idea of sex. But in doing so, it seems to have cheapened the idea of what it is. And some may think that I'm going to use Song of Solomon to show you how to have sex. That This is um, a book of sexual ethics, and you'd be mistaken. That's not where we're going. Um, Sherlock Holmes, in uh, one of, his, one of uh, Conan Doyle's um, detective novels, wrote once said, You see, but do not observe. The Song of Songs, as Matthew Henry put it, is excellent above any others, for it is wholly taken up with describing the excellencies of what? Of Christ, and the love between him, between him and his redeemed people. So when we ask the question of why does the Bible use this kind of language, it's 
because it's describing the loveliest of loves. God reveals himself to Israel and by default to the church in this way. This is part of how they have come to know God, the way he relates to them. Um, we go back to Genesis 4. Um, the man was intimate, as the CSB puts it, with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. And the word that the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, translates as intimate in Hebrew is yada. And yada is an interesting word because the most literal way we could put that is to know. The man knew his wife. We see this again in Genesis 4:17 with Cain. Cain was yada, was intimate. He knew his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. We go to Deuteronomy. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed every one of you who followed Baal Peor. But you who have remained faithful, which is also intimate language, to the Lord your God are all alive today. And lastly, we go to Amos chapter 3. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. Verse 2, I have yada, I have known only you, out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God has related to his people throughout the story of the people of Israel throughout that that narrative arc we call the Old Testament. He has related to his people time and time again with this language. To be intimate is to know them fully. That's the, the Jewish understanding there. To, to know them fully and truly. Perhaps the King James language of knew and know is more appropriate than the modern vernacular. Perhaps the idea of knowing is more appropriate than we realize. So what does this have to do with the text that is before us? Well, because we have a book that speaks in very erotic terms. And some of us will um, think it goes down some weird, route, some weird roads. And just a caveat, I am not going to shy away from what it says. When, when it takes the, those routes we don't think it should in our modern American mindset, I'm going to read what it says. And I'm going to puzzle through why it says what it says. And so if you're under 18, um, when it says breast, I'm going to say breast. I'm not dancing around things. This is what we have. This is the word of God. So let's see what God has said. And puzzle through what he is revealing to us through these words that we may not necessarily understand. So without further ado, let's look at the text that is before us today. And that is the first four verses of the song. This is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. It is only right that they adore you. As I said, 
this sounds weird to us modern Americans that have such carnalized this idea of intimacy that we don't always know what to do with this. So this is an interesting way to begin. So let's dive in. Add Fontes to the fountain. The woman does not give an, an identity to the subject of who she's talking about, something which indicates the depth of her love for him. And she dives right into this statement. Well, who is this woman? We don't know. In terms of the literal context, um, we don't know. I'm personally persuaded that this is not a real scenario, but that this is purely allegory. That The primary meaning here is a poetic depiction of God's love for his people. And that there's not a secondary... Um, this is a love story between two people. Um, when we read this is the Song of Solomon, I don't think that necessarily means this is Solomon speaking of one of his wives, because we know that Solomon did not get a lot of things right with marriage and women, and it would seem odd that he would favor one over the other, and that be right. And so personally, I'm persuaded that the primary contextual meaning here is that it is an allegory of God's love for his people. And so let's, let's carry that in. Let's carry that into how we proceed. So it starts with the Song of Solomons, which is Sol the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. We know that Solomon wrote a lot of things. It says in First Kings, uh, if we can refer to that for a moment, First Kings chapter four, just for some clarity, because this gives us a little bit of backdrop as to the authorship and why that's important to start there. So 1 Kings 4.32 reads, Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Emissaries of all peoples, sent by every king on earth who, also, who had heard of his wisdom, came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So he wrote over 1,000 songs. This is the one we have. He wrote, you may find a couple psalms that are attributed to Solomon, but as far as songs, specifically this kind of song, this is, this is longer than a psalm. It's a different format than a psalm. This is the only one we have. And this is where he begins with, with, um, this heading says the woman, that there are going to be times where who's speaking changes throughout the song, and the Hebrew text notates that, and most Bibles will as well. But it starts with the woman. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. In an age where intimacy has been carnalized and it's been made to be dirty and foul, this seems strange to our modern ears. We should pause and consider what that, this would represent. After all, this is poetry. And the idea of, the, of kissing um, calls to mind the act of expression. Jewish rabbinic tradition um, perceived this verse as being about the law, which proceeded from the mouth of God. Having the complete revelation of God in Christ, we can therefore ask a similar question, what does Christ do with his mouth? Hebrews 1 says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets 
in different time, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Matthew 4, four, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He must, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The desire expressed here in Song of Solomon, I believe, is a desire for communion with the one she loves, not through vessels or messengers, but with himself. The following line builds on this, that your caresses are more delightful than wine, that Christ's acts of love are more delightful than wine. The, the loveliness of Christ, he is the loveliest of loves. This is the superior love. Um, in his commentary, I'm not sorry, his systematic theology, sorry, um, Joel Bikia writes on union with Christ. And he says, In union with their living high priest, Christians are also an anointed priesthood. They cannot and need not repeat his work of redemption, but they share many priestly privileges by union with the Redeemer. Martin Luther said that the Christian has a royal marriage with Christ as the heavenly bridegroom, so that the believer may may say, All is mine, and all mine is his. All his is mine, and all mine is his. The cry of the woman here is ours, for a union with Christ. The bridegroom is Christ, and the woman is the church. John 17 says, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. Union. We're talking about union as the church and union with Christ the husband. The fragrance of your perfume, verse 3, is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Ecclesiastes 7.1, which is also written by Solomon, says a good name is better than fine perfume. So that, that same imagery carries over. What's interesting here is that in God's vocabulary, perfume is often seen as synonymous with his good name. If we go back to Exodus, um, chapter 30, the Lord spoke to Moses, Take for yourself the finest spices, twelve and a half pounds of liquid myrrh, 
half as much, which is six and a half, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cane, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, and a gallon of olive oil. Prepare from these a holy anointing, a holy anointing oil, a scented blend, the work of a perfumer, and it will be holy anointing oil. He keeps repeating that phrase, keep that in mind. With it, you are to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table with all its utensils, the lampstand with its utensil, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin with its stand. Consecrate them, and they will be especially holy. Whatever touches them will be consecrated. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Tell the Israelites, this will be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It must not be used for ordinary anointing on a person's body, and you must not make anything like it using its formula. It is holy, and it must be holy to you. Anyone who blends something like it or puts something of it on an unauthorized person must be cut off from his people. Go to Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approaching him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this imagery persists, um, not just in Exodus or Song of Solomon, but even in the gospels. This, that perfume, while it's fine, better than a good name, that a good name is better than fine perfume, Perfume and like oil, anointing oil is like in reference to God is likened to a sign of His good name. There's not a difference that it's part of the illustration of the goodness of His name. So then that imagery persists in Song of Solomon. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. His goodness is intoxicating to continue that illustrative language of wine in the previous verse the effect of his goodness on us is immense your name is perfume poured out there is a lot of gravity there this is we're not talking about just anybody's name we're talking about Christ the name of names as it said in Hebrews 1, that the name he inherited is superior to the angels. And it says, No wonder young women adore you. What does that mean? Who are these young women? Quite literally, the word is virgins. So, if the main woman is the church, wedded to Christ, the anointed Messiah King, who are these other women? And why are they so interested in this man. This is something I spent quite some time puzzling through. I didn't have an answer coming to this text. I've had to p 
ponder through this for some time now. But verse 4. Part of verse 4 is the young women. And it says, from their perspective, we will rejoice and be glad in you, speaking to the man. We will, and the man and the woman, we will celebrate your caresses more than wine. But it's preceded by, take me with you, let's hurry, oh that the king would bring me to his chambers. And that completes the thought of this initial poetic verse from the woman. And then they say, we will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. So the virgins seem to summarize what has already been said concerning the bridegroom, the king. Thus, I believe that we can identify their will as being aligned with that of the bride. John Gill, in his commentary on the book, in his wrestling with this, asserts that the young virgins represent all believers, past, present, and future, who come to profess the excellencies of Christ the bridegroom. And he puts it this way, These being betrothed to him in righteousness, in loving kindness, in mercies, in faithfulness, know, own, and acknowledge him as their Lord and husband, and steadfastly adhere to him as such. He is ahead, both of eminence and influence to them. To him they hold, and him alone they submit unto as such. He is the Savior of the body, the church, and they acknowledge him to be theirs, and will have no other. Second Corinthians 11 says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me, says Paul. Yes, do put up with me. Recall chapter 1 on the, the folly of the world and the wisdom of God. For I am, a je I am jealous with you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Revelation 2, in reference to one of the seven churches, says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. We are wedded to Christ through the work of the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. And this is a marriage. Make no mistake, that imagery does persist. This is a marriage. But it's not an open marriage, as has become trendy lately in the world. There is one bridegroom for one bride. And that one bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 4 says, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you, and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And he is jealous, not because he's a spiteful, hopeless romantic or anything. He is jealous because he will not share us. He is jealous because he wants all of us. All that we have and all that we are belongs to God, who made heaven and earth and us. <clears throat> so why is all of this relevant? 
Well, because I believe that the love that is portrayed for us in Song of Solomon is eschatology. That the love that is in God is eschatological. And to that I direct us to Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And if we go down to verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bulls filled it with the hoof. Let me start again. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with twelve gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The bride is a holy city built up by God, built up in God. The foundations are adorned with the apostles, it says. Ephesians 2 says, So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built, together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Back to Revelation 21. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, chrysoprase, sorry, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Let's take a moment to address the fact that there are twelve foundations. This is something that does not jive in the human mind. This is the kind of beautiful thing God is building that does not make sense to human minds. That our ability to understand this is stretched to the limit. Twelve foundations, that doesn't make sense in our head. Verse 21, the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. So using language of the priests, the tribes, the apostles, and the temple. The completion of God's work is illustrated. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in it, 
because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor the nations into it. Nothing unclean will enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the day we are longing for. And how does this, how does how do I connect Revelation with Song of Solomon? Because they're both longing for something that is coming. They're both looking ahead to what is not currently present. The Greek word where we get erotic is eros, which quite literally means yearning, longing. Just as the woman in Song of Solomon is yearning for her beloved, so we look ahead longingly, yearningly, to the coming bridegroom, to whom we are joined through the work of Christ on the cross, and in the tomb, and on the throne. This is the love of God, a love so good, so pure, so true, and so right, that it makes things new. Verse 4 of Song of Solomon Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. We yearn for union with Christ. That is unfettered from this body of death. That is unfettered from our own sinful insufficiencies. From the fact that we do not meet the standard. We do not measure up. That we break the heart of God every day by things we cannot divorce ourselves from, things we cannot break away from. We have broken the law of God by nature. But God, who is rich in mercy, became a curse so that we would be united with him. And he sent, in the person of, of Christ, the Son, he, he, the word became flesh, the Bible says, that he dwelt among us. He lived the human life, that perfect life that you and I could never live, that you and I will never live. And he died. This perfect man goes to a cross, and he dies. And the fullness of the just wrath, of the punishment that should have been on you and on me for our sins, was laid upon Christ. And we call that atonement because... We were put at one with God. That that was a transaction by which our account is clear. That all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for and forgiven. So that we can come to God through Christ with faith and repentance, knowing that all who come to him he does not cast aside. And we can be received as his own. As his own. As his child, in a sense, but we are grafted into God's family when we didn't deserve to be there. Likewise, we are compared to the bride. That we are grafted into the family like a marriage. This is the love of God. This is why we have the Song of Solomon. A love so good, so pure, and so true, and so right. 
that it makes things new. So like the young women, we will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses. We will celebrate the things you do out of love more than wine. And as the woman says in the end, it is only right that they adore you. It is only right that we love this God who has lavished such incredible love on us. And we will continue to flesh this out and see what God shows us in the song in this series, All Loves Excelling, how the the love of God brings us back home. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4.